This morning we will be reading from Romans, from Romans chapter, chapter 5, and we will read verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. Well, last week we started a new series. We began a series called The Gospel. It's even more than you hoped. Uh, the normal diet at Bethany Church is to go through books of the Bible from start to finish. We love the Old Testament. We love the New Testament and everything in between at Bethany Church. And we like to start books and go through them because you don't get to skip the hard parts, which is sometimes really hard, um, but it's all God's Word, and so we want to preach all of it, the full counsel of His Word. But from time to time, we do a topical series from texts uh, as we address things that are of pressing importance or relevancy, and today we're looking at the story of the gospel in the last few uh, week and coming weeks. To examine it at two levels, to answer four questions to the story. And this, in turn, will help us get a foundation of what we mean when we speak of the gospel and give us a larger story to live out of with the smaller stories 
of our individual lives. This will give us the hope of significance, I believe, as we see ourselves as players, as participants in God's cosmic plan for the world. And we always say we're a gospel-centered church, and you know that word is becoming in the last 10 years quite a buzzword in the church, but we really want to be that. And to be that, we have to know what it is. So let's look at the roadmap again that we unpacked last week to start. Remember, we're attempting to weave together two views of the gospel. The one is the street view you see in the middle there, and we, where, where we view things on a day-to-day, down-to-earth, detailed view. And in that view, the chapters are God, man, Christ, and response, those four words. This is the go- a gospel on a, a street view. And, and by the end of this series, if you can remember those four words and a few little details of those four chapters, you would have enough to share the gospel with someone. God, man, Christ, response. Well, the second view is the Google Earth view. That was, remember, the 10,000-foot view of Canby we looked at last week, remember the picture we looked at, down on it. This is the larger, grander, sweeping, epic story of the Bible. And the four chapters that coincide with the street view in this one are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And our attempt in this series, even though it's a tough one, it's a big task, is to weave those two stories together to answer the four questions. Where do we come from? What went wrong? What will make things right? And how can I be made right? Last week, we answered the question, where do we come from, by exploring the mountainous, remember, heights from where we began in the garden as image bearers, given life and identity and purpose to shine God's glory as, a, as royal priests on the globe. This morning, we look to see just how great our fall was. Our expulsion from the center and the restoring of the center. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're headed this week. We're going to look at the demolished center, our expulsion from the center, and then the restoring of the center. Our demolishing of the center, our expulsion from the center, and the restoring of the center. So if you've got your outline, have it open there. Bible to Romans 5, we're going to jump around as well so that we can become a people who, as Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, let's begin with the demolished center where we're going to start today. Let's take a look that we, at us, we demolished the center by trying to become the center as we talk about what happened in the garden so many years ago. Our passage in Romans 5 speaks of this great demolishing and the inheritance of, not good stuff, but the inheritance of sin and death we receive from Adam when it says, look at 12 to 14 again, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there's no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who's to come. Paul speaks of sin entering the world, implying that there was a time when it 
wasn't there. A time when it didn't exist there and, and that death came because of and through sin. And it spread to all of us like a virus for which there is no cure or vaccination. Each and every one of us. One with a, a, a 100% infection rate. 100% and death reigned. What a story. What a tragic story that he's referring to. But remembering from last week, this isn't how it began, was it? This was not how it started. This isn't where we came from. And to understand the fall today, the demolition of the center today, we've got to revisit for a moment again what it was like in the beginning. What was the center like? The center of life, of Adam and Eve's hearts, the center there. And what was the center of the garden? Here's what it was. It was the all-satisfying pleasure of God at the center. That's where it started. That's where we came from. The all-satisfying pleasure of having God at the center. And we have to understand this to make sense of the tragic world today, to make sense of the destructive nature of sin, to make sense of the longing in our hearts for something more than life can give us. You know that feeling. You have that feeling. Like the Tolkien quote a friend sent me this week, certainly... There was on Eden on this very unhappy certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. What is Tolkien saying there? He's saying that there's something deep inside every heart that's got this longing for something that this world cannot give you. You know, when creation was happened, it was uh, the Bible uses this really kind of fun two-word phrase. Tohu wa bohu. Isn't that weird? If I said that and it wasn't a part of the sermon, you'd probably lock me up. If I came to you, tohu wa bohu. It's a strange phrase, but what it really means is just that God formed the world and there was this empty nothingness and void that he started with. And I know that post-fall, God filled the earth. There wasn't emptiness and void, but post-fall, Many of you feel that emptiness and void in your heart. That, that the whole that there is something more, a longing for knowing that there is something bigger than what this earth offers. It's an Eden, an Eden we lost, an Eden that's gone, as Tolkien says. So what again was the all-satisfying experience of the garden? What was God at the center like for Adam and Eve? And, and, and why did that even matter? We talked last week about the created world as God's theater for His glory. The stage upon which He would shine His perfection, His presence. The place where He would interact with humanity. Because God is everywhere, isn't He? Everywhere. Except on earth He was going to interact in a special way with humanity. And Eden was the focal point of that presence. And even within Eden, in the center, there were two trees. As we get down now to the center that was demolished, there were two trees there. The first one was a tree of life, Genesis 2.9 records. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The center of the center now, 
of God's presence was a beautiful tree that would sustain Adam and Eve's life, the tree of life, after they passed the test of the other tree. And as so they ate of this tree of life, it would sustain and they would live forever. So the center of Eden was life eternal. Life with God, perfect communion with our Maker was the center. We talked last week that Eden in some ways was like a temple, a gateway to God and His presence. And there we were. And we were made in His image. He stamped His image upon us to represent Him. Even almost like uh, idols or statues. He already had made something in His image. It was us. Why does the Bible say don't make idols of God, do you know? Why does the Bible say don't make idols of God? Well, number one, you can't reduce God to anything physical, any spiritual. But number two is He doesn't need idols because He's already stamped His image upon us. We are living to represent Him as heirs. In fact, the word, same word is even used for image and idol in the Bible. Not that it's idolatry, but we are his representation, his physical representation on earth. That's how important this image was that we had. Humanity is made like God. We are not God, but he's made us like him in unique ways. What a high place of honor that you and I had at the center at the beginning. And Adam and Eve were to keep God as the center as they lived in obedience to Him as royal priests. They were to work and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Much like the sacred space of a temple, as God revealed His presence in afternoon walks with the couple, In the garden, they were to care for it and work it and keep it. But the garden was never meant to remain static. By that, I mean unchanging. And just at the center, they were no, they were to exercise dominion and and, and subdue the earth and to spread God's glory out from the center of the garden as image bearers. Where are you most content? Think about that for a minute. Where are you most content? Is it lounging on the couch or the chair watching the game? Are you most content out hunting in the open hills? Relaxing in a hot tub? I don't know. Spending time with your grandchildren? Maybe it's in bed, cozy under your covers. Where are you most content? Well, whatever that place is for you, it doesn't compare at all. Even an ounce, a bit of the contentment that Adam and Eve felt in the garden with God's presence in the center. They lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. There was no, no, no formless void in their heart. Tohu wabohu. It wasn't there. It was full and full of God and the pleasure of knowing Him. That was the definition of the good life. That was it. It's perfect harmony. The Bible calls it shalom. It was no tohu wabohu anymore. It was full life, peace, shalom they had with God. God at the center of this beautiful garden and Adam and Eve with their purpose, their identity, and their work given according to his perfect blueprint. 
to cultivate the garden, to grow food and families and and neighborhoods and communities where people care for each other, to be royal priests for the life of the world. That was the center. So you can see the madness now when they exchanged the Creator for the creation. The madness of exchanging the center of the Creator for the creation. Okay, you might think, well, it was made that way. God made it. But you might think, you know, but is God really still needed for it to go on? I mean, okay, maybe he got us off to a good start, but some people have questioned, hasn't religion caused so much of the problems of the world anyways? And So is God really still needed? He made it, okay? Maybe you might even think that. Actually, if you think about history, though, the, the greatest atrocities and most deaths that have taken place in the 20th century were at the hands of atheistic, secular governments. At their hands, more people died in the 20th century than at any other hands. And I bring this up and I raise this line of thinking because this line of thinking is the line of thinking of probably a lot of people today. Maybe we came from some God somewhere, but do we really still need Him to go on? America and the West is attempting really for the first time in all of human history now. I'll say that again. All of human history, America and the West is attempting to create societies where a a theistic now, not just say Christian, but a theistic worldview has been removed from the center. We're attempting something that's never been done before, and and a secular kind of humanism has stepped in. I mean, we're going to see how that goes. (laughs) So far, not so good, right, wouldn't you say? But he was in the center. He was in the center of this garden. He was in the center of Adam and Eve's life. And God placed in the garden a warning sign for them. A warning sign for Adam and Eve. Because remember, at this point, they still can choose to sin, right? It's it's not perfect there, as it will be someday or would have been then, I think, if they passed the test. They can still sin. So he gives them a warning. Here it is. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He gives them a warning in the garden. Have you ever thought when you read this story, like, I thought about this tree, and you go, why did God even have to put it there? I'm sure you have. I've had that thought before. I mean, why would he even put the tree there? Why would he do this? Well, first, the tree wasn't evil in itself. It wasn't like inside the juice of that specific fruit was the microscopic evil. No, it was evil because God forbid it. It was evil because he put a warning on it. A couple trees in the middle of this garden. One of life, one of knowledge of good and evil, which would bring death. It was put there as a test. One tree offered life, as I said. The other offered death. But here's the thing. They both looked good. We think, how dare God do that? How dare He do that? How dare He put that tree there? Why would He do that? 
But when we think that way, we reveal that we don't really believe that obedience is the blessed way of life. That to have opportunities and tests and, and to obey is actually the blessed way of life. Because he's giving them an opportunity by putting this tree there to live in blessed obedience to him as the center of their life when they don't eat the forbidden fruit. When we think, we, when we re- think this way about that tree, we really reveal what they kind of revealed. That deep down inside of our center, there is really part of us that wants to live with our will at the center and not God's. And the tree actually was a means of grace for them, I believe. You think like, what? Like, how is that even possible? Well, think about it. Every time Adam and Eve looked at this tree, they would be reminded of a truth that they better remember. Oh, yeah, I'm not God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. There's that tree. I am not the final authority. I'm a creature. I'm dependent upon him. And this other here, this tree here reminds me of that. Let me go back to living as I'm intended to, as a royal priest for my king. It was actually a graceful warning sign. We put all kinds of warning signs on things, don't we? Don't touch, you get shocked, you know. Don't ingest this, you'll die. Imagine if he didn't put the warning sign there. How loving would that be? Put two great trees next to each other and no warning sign. That wouldn't be loving. He gives them this warning to remind them who they are and how blessed pleasure comes from having God at the center. So Satan comes along to capitalize on the test. And where Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent and have dominion over it, what ends up happening? A part of God's creation has dominion over the couple. In Satan, in this snake-like form. And so Adam and Eve taste, take a bite, and how instantly sour that must have turned in their stomachs as we think about this madness of exchanging God at the center for the promise of a lie that Satan gave them. They tried to take hold of the good life, the way they saw it, rather than trust God at his word. So when Adam and Eve took hold of the fruit and ate it, it wasn't just about breaking some arbitrary command, like, ah, eh, let's just, that tree, yeah, don't eat that tree. Just don't eat that tree. No, in their heart they were saying, I reject your authority, God. So much deeper. I don't want to be like you. I want to be God. In fact, that's the very temptation Satan gave them. No more vice-regent. Make me king. See, it wasn't just some arbitrary rule. You're no longer the center. I am. It's madness, isn't it? It's madness. It's, It's moral insanity is what it is. It's the lie of sin that promises so much and then does a quick bait and switch and becomes bitter in the end. It's like empty calories. Cotton candy, you know, it looks so good. You take a bite of it, and it's almost like you're eating air. What looks so good and you thought would be so pleasing just disappears in your mouth. That's sin. 
Well, the first step was demolishing the center. Let's look at the results and kind of we're taking a couple steps down today before we go back up. The second step is this. We were expelled after demolishing the center. We were expelled from the center in spiritual and physical death. The Bible calls this act of what they did, the Bible calls it sin. Sin. It's the word that means kind of a missing of the mark. If you were to be a uh, archer with a target, missing the mark. But Adam and Eve actually just really went in a totally opposite direction. It wasn't just a little miss by a couple inches. They're going a completely opposite direction. It's so much deeper. And our Romans passage in chapter 5 speaks that this brought death. Spiritual, as the relationship with God was transformed and changed. And physical as their bodies began to decay and ache and would someday die. You know, here's the thing for them. They were given this warning sign. And obedience looked good to them. It did. As long as it made sense to them. But isn't that our problem too? I mean, think about it. I can think of all kinds of contemporary examples and and examples in my life and examples in your life where where as soon as we no longer see the point of obedience in an area, we decide, you know what? Disobedience is actually good. What God said was good is no longer good, and maybe it's not even right, and maybe to disobey is right. As soon as we don't see our purpose in it or some purpose that we can come up with, we too do the madness of exchanging the center and putting ourselves there. So let's take a look and examine our sinful condition a bit. Let's look at the sin in here first. The sin in here. I know sometimes people say in settings or thinking about sharing the gospel or talking about who we are in, in church life, you know, it's so kind of condemning and kind of, kind of gets at our, hurts our self-esteem and we talk about sin too much. Uh, or, you know, we don't like to talk about sin even. It's hard to talk about sin. Or maybe it's a, yeah, it's a bit too negative to be talking about it so much. But wouldn't you rather actually have an accurate diagnosis? Wouldn't you actual, actual, actually rather know what's going on in this world? An actual uh, accurate diagnosis of the problem? That we're trying to save ourselves with creation rather than the Creator? You know, some of the most frustrating things are when you have an unknown medical diagnosis. Many of us have been there. Lots of us have been there. It is so frustrating to not know what's going on with your body when you feel symptoms, isn't it? That's maddening, isn't it? (laughs) I went to the doctor this week for my throat again. As many of you know, the last couple years now I've had throat issues, and they're still ongoing. Uh, I haven't been back to 100%, but I go see a throat doctor every once in a while, and was still t- telling him about some of the experiences I, and symptoms I had. And he did a scope, which is really fun. Something goes through your nose and down into your throat. Camera that looks at your throat, it's no big deal. You can go for me next time in my place. But after he finished, he said, he said, everything looks fine. I wish I could tell you there was like a tumor in there or something. I went, excuse me? <laughs> what? He actually said that. What he meant was that I wish we could find the root cause and then go after it. That's what he meant. I mean, why wouldn't you want to know? Of course. 
That's what talking about sin is. It's getting an accurate diagnosis of the human condition that sin is in here, in our hearts. In here refers to our hearts when I say the sin in here. Romans 5, the passage says that that sin and death spread even to all. And Romans 3 says all, all have sinned. The verse says that all have sinned, Romans 3 says, and fall short of the glory of God. It means that sin is just not on us like some stained clothes or when your kids come back from playing in the rain and the mud. No, it means sin is of us and in us too. In you. One of the very few times I feel comfortable saying in you as an individual. Every part of us has fallen and impacted, that means then. Mind, body, biology, emotions, will. It's not that we're as sinful as we could be. Thank God for His common grace we're not. But it means that every part of us is is shot through with sin. Like buckshot from a shotgun that's meant to take out large game. We're We're just shot through with it. And this sin is putting ourselves in the demolished center rather than God. What does that look like? I love Nancy Guthrie's quote from that book I just held up a minute ago from Even Better Than Eden. She says this, the reason I, you and I do not have the life we longed for is not only that Adam and Eve ate of this tree, it's that we put ourselves in the place of God, determining for ourselves what's good and what's evil. We hold grudges against others, deeming ourselves sufficient to determine who does or who does not deserve forgiveness. We think our coldness gives them what they deserve when really our resentment robs us of life. She goes on, we sleep with someone we're not married to, thinking it's the intimacy we're longing for only to discover that illicit illicit intimacy isn't enough to satisfy Without the security of lifelong commitment as God has prescribed, we're eaten up with anxiety over what's happening or not happening in our lives and the lives of those we love because we're not sure that God is doing the right thing at the right time. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. That's how we rationalize taking God out of the center and placing ourselves there. Because you see, the sin is actually... Your sin, my sin, is actually always a symptom of something greater going on inside of us. Putting ourselves on the center, in the center, and dethroning God. And it comes from inside of us, in here. Jesus said this, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what? What comes out? What comes out? I've used this example, I think one other time here, and I probably won't again for many, many years, but it's so relevant to this topic today. Maybe you remember, I think it was a couple years ago, I used the same illustration, but um, it's so helpful for this concept of the sin in here. I've got here just a regular water bottle, hasn't been opened yet, I'm full of water, and let's say I was to take the cap off of it. Let's not say, I'll do it. The cap is off. And it's full of water. Pam, you're okay. You're not going <laughs> to. But let's say I shook the bottle a little bit. Let's say I shook it a little bit. What happens? How about a lot? It's just water. It's okay. 
If I was to ask you the question, if I was just to ask you the question, why did the water come out of the bottle? Your first answer would probably be, well, you were just standing in front of us and you shook the bottle. But if I was to ask the question to you another way, why did water come out of the bottle? How would you answer that? Because water was in it, not Coke, not orange juice, not Sprite, but water. That's what sin inside of us is. If it comes out of you, it's because it was already inside of you. The shaking up is just the situation of life. We all go through those. We like to blame it on the situation, don't we? You made me so mad. You made me lose my temper. Or we yell at somebody on the side who cut us off. No, 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 no. That was just the shaking of life. What comes out from the inside is what's inside of you. If it's ugly, it was inside of you. If it's beautiful fruit, it was inside of you. The situation, as we said, was just a shaking up of your life. I've been so impatient with my kids these last few days. I'm wrestling with this right now myself, that I don't like what I see coming out uh, from inside of me in the shaking up of my life. It's from me. The anger my kids have experienced. I don't like it. So when it comes out of us, what happens? Let's talk about the sin out there too. The sin in here, the sin out there, the result of sin with God is a spiritual, relational brokenness that happens. They are expelled from the garden, from the center. They're kicked out of the demolished center, and they are barred from reentering. And now not only was sin personal, but it was outside of us too, as Paul says in Romans. It spread. It spread over the globe. There was a breakdown in the spiritual and the psychological and the social and the physical in the world. As Christians, we should not underestimate the destructive power of sin inside of us, but outside too in the world. Even Romans says that the creation in some strange way is groaning under the weight of the fall. I don't think the rocks, that means they have true animate life or anything, but somehow the creation, maybe that's the the natural disasters we call, but the creation's even groaning under the weight of the fall. As Christians, we should be the first to admit that if we are sinful individuals, isn't it just possible that sin has the corrupting power at even larger levels? A family of town, of nation, of systems, of different things in our life. We have to think that as Christians or we underestimate the power of sin. It's both cosmic and personal. Or personal and cosmic. Everyone today has got this fear of this word, systemic. You've heard it in the news. You've heard it all over the place. It's used sometimes just to couch things under, ah, that's just systemic. Systemic racism has been used most. But look at Adam and Eve after they sin. The very first system, the family, what happens? Breaks down. Falls apart. You did it. She did it. He did it. And then we go on from there and you get Genesis series. Remember, Cain and Abel to Lamech to Tower of Babel. Sin is both personal and cosmic. It works outside of ourselves. 
in a bigger way. Let me give you another illustration. How many like to do jigsaw puzzles? Sometimes put them out at Christmas or yeah, some of us, a few of us, maybe half or so. Uh, it can be fun to do. Well, imagine a jigsaw puzzle. I've got a few here and some pieces on the table here. Imagine a jigsaw puzzle, and the different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle were like our identity, different pieces of, of who we are. And we've got 7.6 billion people in the world trying to put together all their own jigsaw puzzle, their identity, who they are. And the individual pieces of the puzzle are characteristics like age or interests, likes, dislikes, economics, career, family, friends, stuff, whatever that's important to you, become little pieces of your jigsaw puzzle as you're building your identity. And all of these things form our identity and they become like pieces of a puzzle. Well, how many of you, when you build jigsaw puzzles, you have your way you, you do it, don't you? You've got your way you work on. How many of you like to separate the pieces by color? Any of you do that? Okay, a few of you, yeah. All right, how many of you do the thing where you kind of start at the borders and find all the flat pieces? Okay, most of you guys. And how many of you, the box top is pretty helpful, isn't it? Yeah, a couple of guys in the back. Yeah, it's really helpful. The box top's like the larger picture, the story. Now, what if you were to get the wrong box top? I heard some groans, actually. I was hoping for that. <laughs> this puzzle here is of Portland. Uh, down here, I got pieces. But what if I gave them the, the Oregon State Beavers box top? Or what if I gave that to a Ducks fan? I'd really be in trouble then. But if you get the wrong box top, you don't know what the pieces are and where the pieces go. We have billions of people in the world all creating their own puzzle to the wrong box top their identity, who they are. They've been given the wrong box top, and it creates chaos, disorder, personal, and cosmic. How many of you like when the cat comes along or the toddler comes along at Christmas time when your puzzle's out? Who likes that? No. You've shattered my identity. We shouldn't be surprised that sin runs deeper than just interpersonal. And it even runs through on larger levels in our world when everybody's trying to put together a puzzle of their identity with the wrong box top. Well, God sends them from the garden. Somehow this story's got to have a turn in it, right? (laughs) Some point today. And they're to live life without him now, or at least separated from him and his intimate presence. And angels guard the way back with flaming swords. What are they guarding? They're guarding the tree of life. The, the way back to the tree of life was closed off. They failed the test at the tree, in the presence, in the center there with God. It's dismal, it's desperate, it's demolished, but it isn't over. It's not over by even a long shot. What do we need? God's box top. And when you look on the top of that one, do you know what's there? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what puts it all together. That's what fits it together and takes the pieces of this messy, broken world and heals it. Let's look at number three. 
Jesus restores the center by plunging into the center of God's wrath. On that box top is a cross. You know what it is, really? The cross is another tree. Another tree. Go figure. The garden trees now to another tree. And Paul goes on in Romans 5, verse 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, it's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Christ. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does Jesus do? He inserts himself in to the puzzle. He puts himself into the world and he becomes, even as you want to take the metaphor further, he becomes one of the pieces. The piece. The centerpiece. You see, we demolished the center by displacing God. We lost a beautiful garden, our purpose, our identity, our meaning. We placed ourselves too under the center of God's judgment when we did that. We'll talk about that even more next week. But this is the accurate diagnosis. But the antidote, the cure, was another test. And Jesus passed that one with flying colors. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was in another garden. (laughs) Another garden. And it was a test, as I said, with another tree. See the continuity of the Bible? And he really didn't want to eat of this tree. Is there another way, Father? Is there another way to do this? Some other test, some other thing. And God said, there is no other way, son. There is no other way. And Jesus said, I will eat this bitter fruit for our people. I will take the wrath they deserve for our people. I will plunge myself into that center because they placed them at that center. Do you want to know the accurate diagnosis? If that's the solution, yeah. If that's the solution, Peter said it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the what? Tree, another tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. And that is what our elements represent. That is what they show us. That's the story that they tell. Jesus plunging in to the sword of God's wrath for you. Paying the penalty for you by putting himself at the center rather than you. And you have to be immersed in this larger story. We have to be. On a Google Earth level, on a street level, you have to be soaked in it and become malleable by by, 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 by marinating in it what he did for you. And when he becomes that centerpiece for you, the last one that you're missing that you find under the couch, you know that one? (laughs) 
when he becomes that centerpiece for you, it makes it all fit together. Everything. And you will live out of the true, the true story of the right box top. The larger story of the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And he will become for you over time and ultimately in eternity that all-satisfying pleasure that we lost at the beginning. And you'll stop feeling the need to fill that tohu wabohu, that empty void that's there that you feel when Jesus is the centerpiece. Let's take a moment and just pause, just stop, try to take our mind out of what you've been thinking about, the stress you've been feeling, and I want you just to focus for a minute. Use this as a time of prayer to the Lord seeking Him, repenting of sin, of times that you can think of when you've placed yourself at the center and pushed God out of the center and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper. This could be a time of repentance too. The Lord says, don't take this without having a a clear conscience before Him, bringing your sin to Him. He even says there can be judgment in that so that He takes that seriously. Spend some time with Him now as we listen to music and, and pray with the Lord.